Hear the assurance of pardon this morning coming from Colossians chapter 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ appears, who is your life, then you will also appear with him in glory. Amen. What a great and glorious hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please turn with me to the book of Luke. The scripture passage this morning comes from Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Following the reading of God's word, we will sing the Gloria Patri. So please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Hear the word of the Lord. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, his only, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with great awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Surely one of the greatest tragedies that anyone could ever experience in life is the death of a son or a daughter. In searching for words to describe that experience this week and realizing that I had absolutely none, I came across this story that Phil Riken has told and I would like to tell you. He talks about a great Southern preacher named Benjamin Morgan Palmer and his wife who lost their teenage daughter. 19 years earlier, they had also lost their infant son. This was back in the day when people often buried their loved ones in their backyard or near their their house. So they were going to bury their daughter in the same place where 19 years earlier they had buried their infant son. This is what Benjamin Palmer writes. The pickaxe and the shovel threw aside the earth, which for many years had pressed upon the bosom of the infant. Only a few bones and a little skull. No, wait a second. And with trembling hand, the father clipped one little curl from the, which the luster had faded. But the twining still around the hollow temple. He placed it on the palm of his hand without a word before the eye of the mother. With a smothered cry, she fell upon his neck. It is our boy's. I see it as long ago, the soft lock that curled upon his temple. Take it. It is to us the prophecy of the resurrection, 
the grave has not the power to destroy. Certainly, as great of a tragedy as losing a son or a daughter, certainly we need some kind of hope. That hope can only really be found in the resurrection. When someone loses a loved one, all kinds of emotions and questions start to surface. Will I ever see this person again? Do I have to go through this alone? Is there really such a thing as a resurrection? But what's abundantly clear to us is that our love for that person is powerless to preserve them from death. What is so wonderful about Christianity is that God has given us not simply a book to read, stories to tell, friends here on earth. What God has given to us is a person. He's given to us a companion, a heavenly companion who's come down here to earth. What I want us to see in this passage are two things, that Jesus first is a compassionate companion to those who have lost loved ones. Second, that Jesus is a capable companion to those who have lost loved ones. He's compassionate and he is capable. His compassion is not a distant compassion. It's a very present help in our time of need. His capability is not a distant one, an empty one. No, it is a very powerful and active capability that works for us in all of our trials. First, Jesus is a compassionate companion. The Bible is quite clear and open about the sorrows that we face. Two examples would be David loses a son in the Old Testament. Job, the second example would be he loses seven sons and three daughters in a single day in Job chapter 1. Ten children in a a single day. Psalm 88 ends this way. My friends and neighbors have turned against me, and now darkness is my only companion. Darkness is my only friend. The Bible speaks into our suffering. What we get in the New Testament is a companion, a compassionate one. Jesus has been teaching in Capernaum, and he leaves that home base, you might say, even though it's not his true home. He travels about 25 miles to the city of Nain, which is not a remarkable city. In verse 12, he approaches the town gate, and he sees there a widow who is mourning the death of her son. It's a funeral procession. It would have been a large gathering of people. It seems kind of bizarre to think about today, but in those days, the Talmud actually required you to pay mourners if you had lost a son or a daughter. So there were paid, most likely paid mourners behind them, behind this widow, mourning the loss of this young man. Jesus, when he sees this widow, his heart goes out to her, it says in verse 13. And that phrase, his heart went out to her, it describes Jesus' pity. The root word comes from a word that means 
from the inside or the heart, the liver, the lungs, the viscera. So it's describing an emotion that has a physical effect. We see this in other places as well. When Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb in John chapter 11, it says that he is deeply moved in spirit. Now that phrase there, deeply moved, comes from a classical Greek word, which means it comes from a horse snorting. He's growling, you might say, with anger, with frustration. We know that he weeps with Mary and Martha. We know that he weeps over Jerusalem. When he goes to the cross, I think there is sorrow in his heart as he gives his mother to the beloved disciple. B.B. Warfield, a great Presbyterian churchman, said uh, he wrote a treatise called The Emotional Life of Our Lord, in which he said this, that no doubt compassion is the emotion which most frequently is attributed to Jesus. The appeal of two blind men that their eyes would be opened in Matthew chapter 20, the appeal of a leper for cleansing in Mark chapter 1, set our Lord's heart throbbing with pity, as did also the mere sight of a bereaved widow wailing by the coffin of her only son as they bore him forth for burial. If you want to know the emotion that Jesus felt most in his life, it was compassion. He's a compassionate companion. When he comes to her and says, don't cry, he's not asking her to suppress her emotion, in my opinion. I think he's, he knows what he's about to do. He knows that he is about to raise this young man. One interesting side note to this story is that Jesus raises three different people in his life. He raises Lazarus in John chapter 11. He raises Jairus' daughter in Luke 8. And here he raises the widow of Nain's son. In each case, he gives them back to women. Also, in the Old Testament, we see that it's women who lost their loved ones and when they are raised, they are given back to the women. And the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings chapter 17, or the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings chapter 4. When Hebrews 11 is recounting the hall of faith, it gives a very interesting line when it says that women, in verse 33, women received back their dead. It doesn't say men received back their dead. Why? I think it's because God deeply cares for the vulnerable. And in the ancient world, women were vulnerable, especially if they had lost their husband, who was the chief and perhaps even only means of their survival and being provided for. If he passes away, then usually the responsibility of providing may have fallen to the son or a son or many sons if they had many. But she was vulnerable in a way that is different than the modern world. When Jesus gives this woman her son back, I think it's because he's recognizing and seeing her vulnerability. And those are the people especially that Jesus has come to comfort. 
And he does comfort us. We are told throughout the Bible that in some mysterious way that Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Or Isaiah 63 puts it that this way, in all our afflictions, he is afflicted. We are mysteriously, spiritually united to Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. And therefore, he can bring comfort to us. He can be a companion to us when all of the other companions turn back. When no other companion goes forward into death and emerges, Jesus does. We're told in first, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, that God comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I'm sure that if you have lost a loved one, that you have cried out to God and asked the Lord for comfort. Haven't you? Isn't that one of the main ways that we seek comfort is by going to God in prayer? Phil Riken puts it this way, the comfort that we receive is the comfort that we are called to give in Jesus Christ. When we give it, we are following the, the example of Jesus himself. To be like Christ is to be drawn to people who suffer, to have an instinctive compassion for their sorrows. This means noticing people in pain, grieving parents, lonely widows, the chronically ill, and anyone else who is suffering. It means entering into their situation with sympathy. It means giving them the freedom to grieve without presuming to tell them how they ought to feel. It means showing them the Savior who died for them, who lives for them, and who loves them still. Amen. Are we being that kind of comfort to the people around us? Are we able to give the comfort that we have been received from God to other people? Are we able to do that? Well, through Christ, we are able to do that. Jesus is not only compassionate, but he's also capable. That really comes out in the second half of this chapter, or the second half of this passage. He goes up to this coffin, and what does he do? Does he stand at a distance? He reaches out and he touches the coffin. In Numbers chapter 19, we're told that anyone who touches a coffin is unclean. So does Jesus become unclean by touching this coffin? Far from it. The opposite happens. Instead of him becoming unclean, this man is about to become clean in a way that he had never imagined. There's silence. The bearers stand still. It's as if Jesus is reaching out his hand and saying, death, you can come this far, but no further. He says to this man, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up. How contradictory that phrase even sounds. It's almost like an oxymoron. Dead men don't stand up. But with Jesus, they do. They do. In all three miracles that Jesus performs, resurrections that Jesus performs in the New Testament, and all three of them, 
All he does is say the word. He touches the coffin here, but all he does really is say the word. He doesn't touch the young man. He says the word, and it gives us the assurance that his word still contains power. We are told in John chapter 5 that a day is coming, an hour is coming, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. We're told in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead of, in Christ will rise first, and after that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. That's the glorious hope that we have, and it springs not from some distant dream, but from the word of Jesus Christ himself, the same word that he says here, young man, I say to you, get up. He is a capable companion. When this young man rises, it says in verse 15 that Jesus gave him back to his mother. That phrase, gave him back to his mom, is the same phrase that is used in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 17, when Elijah gives the Shunammite woman back her son, it says this, Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. But unlike Elijah, who has to stretch himself out over the boy three times and who prays to God in loud cries, Jesus just says the word. And it shows that Jesus is the greater prophet, the greater Elijah, the prophet to end all prophets. Then the effect of it, of course, is that everyone is filled with awe and praised God, it says in verse 16. I think that we today can and should have the same awe and praise. Now you might think, well, we don't see the physical resurrection happening. But we do hear, we do hear the word of God in the lives of other people and the work that it has done in their life. Consider this, that when the word goes out in the preaching of the gospel and sinners are brought to repentance and faith, what the Holy Spirit is doing is breathing into them the breath of life. It's the same thing that's happening. And even though we visibly can't see it, we certainly can hear about it. Charles Spurgeon said this, that if a convert is made this morning, the result of that conversion will be felt for thousands of years if the world stands so long. Yes, it shall even be felt when a thousand thousand years have passed away, even throughout eternity. Jesus Christ still speaks today. One of the great joys that I have had in the past couple years is to catch up with some of my friends from high school and junior high, and not in every case, but in some cases, my heart rejoices because I remember the person that I'm talking with and some of the struggles that they might have had in high school, 
and the kind of person that they might have been in high school. And believe me, we all had struggles. I had struggles. And then I, I see the person that they now are, that they've now become. And it's a glorious thing when now to see what the Lord has done in their life over the past 20 years. In some cases, it's like seeing a little seed that was planted in a garden 20 years ago and then going into that garden 20 years later and I see a massive tree or a beautiful flower or a wonderful plant. It's a glorious thing. And it fills me with awe and praise. And it ought to fill you with awe and praise too. Finally, consider this, that when we lose a loved one, don't we feel that our love is powerless over death? We, we wonder what we should do with our love. How do we love them still? Do we try to stop loving them? What do we do with the love we have for them? But in Jesus Christ, what we have is a love that is stronger than death, a love that has gone through death. And whatever reason that God has for taking our loved ones away from us today in this life it certainly cannot be that Jesus doesn't love us, that God does not love us. We see that because he sent his son into this world to rescue us, to live the life that we could never live, and to take upon himself the wrath and penalty that we deserve. There's a, a wonderful hymn O love of God, how strong and true. And it says, We read your power to bless and save even in the darkness of the grave. Still more in resurrection light, we read the fullness of your might. So whenever we are at a funeral and we're singing, the glorious thing is that we can sing because we know that those who have died in the Lord have now been perfected. I think what we have a glimpse of here in this passage is what we all deeply long for. We, not just, we do not just long for being raised. Don't we all want to be reunited with our loved ones? Don't we all want to see our loved ones again? And not just the way that they were, old perhaps, ailing in pain, or in the case of young ones, not just them as they are maybe a three-year-old or four-year-old, we want to see them in a perfected state. And what is so glorious is that we have that in the gospel. There was only one resurrection that has ever, ever happened that the person came back never to die again. And that, of course, is in the Lord Jesus. He has a resurrected, glorified body. All of the other resurrections, people died again. And the body that he has now, he's living in now, is going to be the kind of body that you and I have when he comes again. A perfected body. What other worldview has that? What other system of doctrine or philosophy has that? And isn't that what we most deeply long for? Even if people don't believe in Jesus, they should want to believe in him. Because only in him is it possible that we are going to have a resurrected, glorified, purified body for all eternity. 
Only in him can we say that the power of the grave does not have the power to destroy. The grave does not have the final say. Where is your victory? Where is the sting? I want you to have that hope. I want you to experience the life-changing power of the gospel. Jesus came not simply to make bad people good, but dead people alive. And I want that for my friends, for people who do not know the Lord. Are you resting in Jesus Christ? Do you have that hope of the future? Do your friends have that hope? We also should be praying for them so that they too would have that hope. Pray with me now. Let us pray that the Lord would fill us with that great hope. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we thank you that Jesus Christ came as a compassionate and capable companion. That we are not alone in this life and that those who have lost loved ones, young, old, can in fact be comforted by you. We can have hope. In this life, we can in fact have joy as those who grieve not without hope. As there are many people suffering today, even in this room, with various afflictions and cancer, we pray that you would give them hope of the resurrection, of the glorified body that we will one day share with our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he enters in to our suffering and pain, that his predominant emotion throughout his earthly ministry is compassion. We pray that you would cause us to feel that compassion that we would not feel that you are distant. But as we read of Jesus Christ's life and his death and his resurrection, that we would have an ever-present help in our time of trouble. Fill us with the hope of the resurrection today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.